Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Views on View podcast. I don't know why I said it that way. I feel weird about it now. Anyway, uh, this week on our panel, we have Divya Sasidaran. Hello there. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Chris Fritz. Hey. I should say all your intros. I, I got lazy. Next time, next time. I'm, I'm going to procrastinate. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Darren Jennings. Darren, do you want to say hi? Hello. Good to be here. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at viewsonview.com slash kendoui. Uh, do you want to tell people who you are? Sure. Yeah, my name is Darren Jennings. Um, I'm based in San Francisco, originally from Kentucky, Louisville. I'm currently working at Kong. Um, I am tech lead for a team that's primarily front end, um, but we do manage some full stack um, on the back end. We primarily write our apps in Lua, in Lua um, with the front end being mostly Vue. Wow, you don't hear Lua very often. No, it's definitely a more esoteric language, a smaller community. Yep. I think the last time I coded Lua was to mod a game. Yeah, most people have the intro. They're like, oh, I think I did a Minecraft mod with that. <laughs> nice. uh, so, uh, yeah, Kong is built primarily on top of Nginx, and then we use an open, open source framework called OpenResty. Um, and OpenResty is Lua bindings for Nginx. So we're heavily invested there, and the real bread and butter of Kong is um, our plugin ecosystem, which um, is essentially composing Lua scripts to inject functionality into Nginx. So step back for a second. Kong is uh, like the world's most popular open source API gateway. So if you've ever used um, like AWS as a popular one that a lot of people use, but this is more focused on scalability performance and being on-premises. So we help companies connect microservices and their architectures and then using the power of Nginx to uh, tie it all together. I just want to say, with the power of Nginx. <laughs> that, that's very cool. So yeah, I, I read some articles this morning. I think you even wrote a few of them. The first thing I looked at, though, was Vue Autosuggest, which is an open source component that you've written. You want to just talk a little bit about that, and then we can talk about the process of open sourcing components and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Vue Autosuggest was originally written at my last job, um, EduSense. They're a marketplace for educational products. We were looking to write an Autosuggest component in our search bar, and we were using Vue, and it just seemed like a really good um, foray into open source. And so we built it, open sourced it, and I've been maintaining it for the past year, a little over a year, I believe. And yeah, just learned a lot on what people wanted from components when you open source them and make them general purpose. And so if you ought to suggest is, you know, some people call it like a, an Omnibox or, you know, if you type into Google in your Chrome suggestions, it would be like, that would be an application of using view auto suggest. It's not like a lot of um, auto-suggest components that try to tie in XHR requests, and it's trying to be as pure as possible, no styling. Um, you just feed it data, and then it handles all of the stuff that is complicated, such as being able to be accessible, being able to uh, interact with the keyboard in intuitive ways, handling if you have multiple data sources and you want to group them, um, having sections. A lot of the code that we wrote became pretty large, and so it seemed like a good idea to open source it, and it's been going pretty well ever since. So on the 
on the scale, I think a lot of component libraries exist somewhere on a scale from like completely zero config where you can just like drop it in and it looks good and it works good and there's nothing else that you have to do to like fully configurable, like completely flexible and very unopinionated. This is more on the unopinionated end. Correct. Yeah. So I think when it first came up, it was basically just a component and you fed it props. Sometimes they're referred to as like control props. We quickly realized that people didn't want to interact with components in that way. So if you come from like a React backend or a React background, you might think, oh, I need to like compose functionality with this component. I don't want to just drop it in. Um, and then you get what you know some people call propagandin, where you just have like someone's like, oh, hey, I want to have view auto suggest actually have a tab UI inside of the dropdown, in which case you can't just build like includes tabs um, as a prop. It needs to be a little more uh, user-friendly. And then as the code grows, um, you don't want the bundle size to get large. So that's something that we kept in mind is that uh, it yeah, it'd be more general purpose so that you could build a tab UI inside of the dropdown if you wanted, but at the same time, it should just kind of work out of the box. Propagate, and I, I like that. That's funny. <laughs> I, I hadn't actually heard that. Okay, I, I, I think I originally heard that from Kent C. Dodds. He's uh, popular in open source and React. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. It sounds like something he'd say, yeah. <laughs> cool. Is this something, like before you open source it, is this something that you were using internally? Yeah, that was definitely something that we did was we uh, released it on NPM as a private NPM package uh, just so we could get in the habit of creating updates, um, using some of the tooling, so like yarn linking so that we could release it internally, adapt it as much as we needed, and then not have to worry about backwards compatibility. So we even like, when we first released it, we just tagged it beta and, you know, changed the API quite a bit before it was, you know, officially open source stable. So, so Yarn link or NPM link, like, could you explain that a little bit? Like, what's the, what is, what is linking for people who might not be familiar with that feature? Yeah, so a lot of times when you're developing a component locally, you want to include it in your package.json, right? But you're also the author of that package. So if you need to pull it from NPM, your, your package always thinks, oh, this is from NPM, like I need to go pull it from the registry. But if you need to link it, this, that's the feature like NPM link is so that you can basically say it's actually on my file system. So it NPM link underneath the hood, it just uses a Linux like symbolic link and it'll point to your file system instead. And I said Yarn link because we use Yarn uh, primarily, and it's it's a little bit more intuitive, I found. Like using Yarn link, um, the, U, the UI is just a little bit nicer, and I've run into fewer issues, but the other essentially the same. Mm, so that allows you to change the, the component library that you're working on and, and sort of develop on it while you're using it in your app at the same yes. time. You don't have to like re-NPM install to like, you know, reinstall it. If yeah, because a file you publish it up to the like registry. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Correct. Got it. So you get to use it as if it's published, even while it's still in development. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Okay, sorry, go, go on. So you were saying you, you were using, you know, NPM link and you wanted to get uh, sort of a hang of the, the process. So, you know, at first this was just private. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted to get a hang of the process. It was private. We knew that it was going to um, need a lot of work as we were developing it, but we wanted to, you know, jump into open source. We wanted to use it on our team and we wanted to be able to share it. And then if PR started coming in, we wanted to be able to use those as, as, as well. But you should be so lucky if your open source project is popular enough that people actually want to submit PRs. Most people, mostly we found that most people just have issues and they want you to fix them. But once we uh, did that, we released it. We um, made it on private, we published it, and then, yeah, pretty much didn't touch it again 
until the community started complaining. And I shouldn't say complaining. They were actually really nice. Um, my experience in open source has been nothing but positive. I know a lot of people are scared that open source is like a burden and that people just complain. That's, that's been my experience of people complaining on Twitter. But uh, actually, everyone was just very thankful. And when they submitted issues, they were very polite. And I've had a lot of, a lot of luck um, just seeing people's experience with the component and how they want to use it. Yeah, I think a lot of times when you hear people complaining on Twitter, it's maintainers of very popular libraries and, mm-hmm. and oftentimes ecosystems. And mm-hmm. I can speak personally that it, it, can, it can feel a little bit overwhelming sometimes. But uh, yeah, my experience is also that, you know, generally people are, are very, very nice. Um, you know, you do have exceptions sometimes, but those are the rare exceptions. I'm curious, what is, uh, when you open sourced it, did you like... What was the biggest use case that people were using this specific component for? Do you have knowledge of that? It was interesting because I was trying to figure it out. I, I soon realized that my component was being used in enterprise level applications that people couldn't share the source for. Oh, interesting. So they would say things like, hey, um, when my clients click the input, they get an error. Or, hey, when uh, we tried to replace um, jQuery auto-suggest um, or like Twitter type ahead, I think was another popular, like people coming from um, legacy applications and trying to migrate to view, they would find my component um, just by searching and they would, they would try to replace old things. And so then their use cases became interesting. Some people would complain about performance because they were, you know, having millions of records in the auto suggest. Some people would um, suggest that the APIs that I were using weren't necessarily like performance. So they would suggest performance enhancements, which was really cool. Hey, wait a second. You said millions. You didn't literally mean millions. I, th- I think actually the, no, it was, it was, uh, I had one user who had thousands, but the problem was, is that each slot in the suggestion was actually, uh, had like a lot of uh, DOM content in it. Oh, really? If you have like an auto suggest, um, I don't currently support um, virtual scrolling. So uh, if you do have thousands, um, it's not a lot per se, but if you have, um, if each each result has a ton of components in it, then that's when you get, you have issues. Oh yeah, definitely. That's actually just an HTML thing. It's It wasn't actually due to the component, obviously. Uh, G- Guillaume has a, has a good auto scrolling library. I know I tried to integrate it at one point, uh, much to no avail. So that's a that's a to do item for sure. Mm, maybe a chance for a PR later. Yeah, open I'm to PRs. I accept them. How do you handle it then when it's okay? Well, it looks like this is your problem and not my problem. Like, how do you tell people that? I think being like really upfront and honest with people, like this library doesn't support it. Not I'll get to that this weekend. Or um, I've tried to give people a very valuable tool has been called Sandbox. So I just, if someone has an issue, I say, here's a code sandbox, can you reproduce it? Or if someone has a niche use case, I try to like just quickly see if I can fix it for them. And if it's something like, hey, it doesn't support um, this specific, like I had, I have an open issue right now where someone wants to implement a tab UI with uh, pagination and it wants to be able to like request XHR requests through the paginated results. And I just told them, like, I don't know exactly how I would do this initially. I have some suggestions, but if you, if you would like to, you can totally help out. And, and how do you know what features, like, how do you decide what features that you actually want to implement? Because you probably have people requesting a lot of different things. Like, wh- where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line for your project? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I honestly, I haven't, like, the tab UI is probably the, 
the thing that I didn't think that I would like try to implement because it didn't fit my use case. And then it being general purpose, I want it to be able to make uh, fit the obvious use cases. So if someone is suggesting a feature that seems like outside of the scope, I don't know if there's a clear line. I haven't seen that line yet, except for what I just mentioned. You haven't found a good way to define the scope yet? Right. Like the virtual scrolling is probably the next big thing that I wanted to implement. And so if someone su- uh, suggested it, I would probably keep the issue open. I wouldn't close the issue and say outside of the scope of this component. Um, it, I would probably just put a help wanted tag on it. Got it. Yeah. Well, one of the, some of the things that I hear library authors sometimes using to decide whether they want to implement a feature is whether there are any significant downsides to implementing this feature. Like, would it increase the size of the component by quite a bit? Would it increase the complexity? of the component, you know, making it harder to maintain uh, or more likely for there to be bugs. How many people are using it? Like, is this something that like most people could take advantage of or is it kind of like a, a 1% edge case? Uh, and, oh, I see Yeah, along the spectrum, I think like defining like where on the spectrum from highly opinionated and providing like everything to, you know, being completely flexible and really taking care of just like one single concern and leaving everything else outside of that, you know, figuring out where in the spectrum you want to fall can also be really helpful in deciding, you know, is this, is this going to be a feature I support or is this the kind of feature that I won't support? And de- defining that in your, in your project readme can also, for people who do feel overwhelmed, reduce the number of like issues and PRs that people open that you would just try to politely close because they've misunderstood what kinds of features are welcome in that project and what kinds of changes are welcome. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And going back to your earlier point, like my, my library isn't used at like, you know, for instance, the, the view level. So I don't, I don't maintain thousands of issues. Um, but that has been a, a goal of mine is that someone should be able to copy the uh, example from the um, like the, there's just like a little code block that's like the base example. They should be able to copy that, put it in their app, and it should immediately work versus uh, some components I see the, the get it working step takes maybe two or three steps. Yeah, and I, I love that you provide a code sandbox for people. It sounds like you've you set this up already so that, you know, there's a, a code sandbox template that is already using view auto suggest and you know all they have to do is like modify it to you know duplicate the behavior that they're seeing in their apps right right so that makes yeah, it I, so much easier than like building a code sandbox from scratch or a lot of people don't even know that code sandbox exists yeah I, i've come across that too i'm very surprised because i use it all the time yeah so that's that's really awesome that you provide that i think that's something uh more library authors should do yeah i'm definitely sitting on the shoulders of giants here i've uh, copied a lot of my open source um inspiration from, like I mentioned, Kent Dodds earlier, even uh, some, like, I think you mentioned the author of the virtual scroller. What's, what was his name? Uh, Guillaume Chow, also known as Acrium. That's his screen name. Okay. Yeah. Acrium. Uh, I've used, I've seen some of his project uh, pro- projects and copied some of like the readme tips. And um, yeah, it's been really helpful to see the community and emulate, not necessarily innovate in the ways that don't need to be innovated. Yeah. Were there any, um, when you're creating components or at least open source projects, there's always the question of testing. What was your approach when you were working on this specific component? So luckily, if you just develop a component, you don't really have to worry about integration tests. I know some people do yeah. use integration tests for just like a simple component, but I, I just took the, um, I tried to use the base library, view test utils, and just do unit tests. Um, I will say that the tests have been invaluable. Like 
knowing when someone submits a PR that all the tests still pass is just like makes you sleep a lot easier at night because you know that your component isn't first is my component isn't being used um, by thousands of people every day and they're not upgrading all the time. So I want to like have some personal assurance that uh, what I've released won't like come to bite me back in like three months when someone discovers a bug that um, was introduced. And then also they run very quickly, their um, unit tests. And uh, I use Jest, I use use snapshot testing to uh, make sure that um, even if you do a very small change that those snapshots will capture um, that you change, you know, some, maybe some attribute you misnamed or, um, you know, whatever it be. That's fair. So like auto-suggest, I'm guessing, is just using like scope slots essentially. And then you're just passing data or props through so that people can just grab it and design their or design their own like component essentially. Yes. Um, it's, it's meant to be unstyled. So if you did plop it into an, un, an unopinionated or, you know, if you had a, just a blank HTML document without any styles, it would look pretty ugly. It would have, you know, the UL. It's, it's a list of, an unordered list with uh, list items. So it would have all of the funky um, styling that comes with blank HTML documents. Um, and, but if you did populate it and say like something that had bootstrap, um, it, would, it would look a little nicer. And then the slots are so that, um, you, you know, you can have your, your items have, you know, images if you wanted or whatever you really wanted. And then you can even put components inside of the slots. Awesome. It's cool. Yeah, even thousands of components with thousands of components in them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is just the process of going to open source. So you realize that you have this component that's, that's useful. Had you already extracted it out to its own package? Or did you build it into the app and then extract it from there? And is there a good way to do that? I would say that open source has to be your mindset when you're writing components. We found that, you know, at Kong, we have an internal component library. And of course, it's called Kong Components. So our, each Kong component is meant to be a uh, like singular entity that doesn't have many dependencies. Um, it tries to be unopinionated about what it receives in props. Um, it doesn't know anything about Vuex state. It doesn't have any, it basically doesn't, it's, it's, they're not application components. And so I think a lot of times when you're developing maybe a large view application, you come up with things like a user component. And then uh, for instance, if it was a Kong user, it would be very specific to Kong. It'd have a lot of Kong business logic in it. But then maybe you say, oh, that user component is just, um, it receives these props and it's it can be extracted out and we can use it in another app that doesn't necessarily have these very specific user attributes. And so when we were developing the view auto suggest library, it was, um, we at first we did have like a lot of, like we had Axios calls in it at first and we were like, wait a minute, like that doesn't need to be in there. Like we don't want if we were to open source this one day, we don't want people have to download Axios in order to get it. So I have a couple questions. Uh, one of them is related to the, the features that you ended up using in order to make the component highly reusable. Like, were there any features that you discovered or features that you found yourself uh, heavily relying on in order to make the component more reusable? I think you mentioned like scope slots earlier, for example. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, that helped in making the component more reusable? Definitely. So um, I was recently going to give a talk on like six patterns that I would suggest using if you're going to open source components. And so I could briefly mention some of those and maybe we can go into going deeper into some of them. But yeah, one of the things I realized is that people really want to write in Vue. So part of the allure of Vue is that they come from either a React world or they come from a legacy jQuery world and they love the Vue documentation. 
and they love it so much that they don't want to see anything that's like that's like outside of that realm. And so at first we were what we were doing is we would provide a component and then down in the methods, you could style a create element. So in view, if you want to create a node, you can use the create element method on the, on the view instance and create some, you know, some DOM content, some nodes, like, so you could customize the slot that way. And so we had a, a method called render suggestion and render suggestion would basically do what the slots are currently doing. And I had people say like, I, I just, uh, I don't get it or it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not intuitive. Um, and it, it was largely because I come from a React background. And so I was using it um, in the, sort of the render prop way. Um, and so I, I realized quickly that slots are like the view way and it's what people wanted. And actually it's more intuitive now when you go to view it, you know, slots were a late addition. They weren't in the first iteration. Something nice about uh, scope slots too, that they are very similar to render props and actually they can be used the exact same way that, that render props can be used. Uh, they're just uh, an abstraction that makes that feature usable across both templates and render functions. Mm-hmm. So you never have to worry about, like the child never has to worry about what the parent is using and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to be able to um, incorporate slots at first, um, but I was um, tied to this render suggestion method at first. And once people started voicing it, um, it was actually very easy to go in and just add slots because it was, if you have render suggestion, use that because it sort of takes precedence over slots. But if, if you don't, then go ahead and use the slot in the template. Cool. Uh, and then, yeah, so another thing I noticed was that people wanted to interact in, with events. So if you look at properties of a component, you usually see like on selected or on click, um, you see different events. And some of those are native to like inputs. So if you just did like at click on view, I'd suggest it should just work. Um, actually, Chris, uh, this is something that I learned from you uh, was the concept of transparent wrappers. So I think I tweeted at you, I don't know, six months ago when I implemented transparent wrappers in, in view auto suggest, but the, there were used to be something called input props and it was mm-hmm. basically you would bind everything inside of input props onto the input itself. Because if you look inside of view auto suggest, it's actually wrapped into div, you know, it's not just yeah. an input. So the transparent wrappers for, you know, maybe the audience who doesn't know, uh, it allows you to pass down properties or listeners from the parent component to a child that is several layers deep within the the custom component. So when people put at click on view auto suggest, they should it should actually bind to the input, not the div. That's the parent of the input. Yeah. So you get um, to use it just like just like a regular input, but with superpowers. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, transparent wrappers, um, slots. Emitting events, what I was saying earlier is that some people I had like a prop called unselected. And people uh, actually, um, if you know if you guys are familiar with Algolia, but it's a um, it's, it's it uses auto suggest in a, in a lot of their base examples, and they wanted uh, Algolia users to be able to implement custom components across all of their libraries. So they have like a React and a Vue and a vanilla JavaScript example. And so um, one of the engineers contacted me and said, "Hey, I wanted to integrate Vue auto suggest, but..." Um, this on selected thing just doesn't really seem like a view thing. It, you should just use at selected. And so that actually made it more obvious when you're actually looking at the component that at selected is actually an event. It's not, um, for instance, anything else or, you know, it's not like a, you wouldn't have to go look at the props to know that. Does that make sense? I, I think so. Yeah. So were there other features that you found like really useful? I think you mentioned there were like six or something. Are, are we on, did we do three so far or something like yeah, that? Yeah, we've done three. 
So the fourth one, I uh, server-side rendering. I think this can get left by the wayside because maybe you don't use it, but it's very easy to make your app server-side rendered. Um, it's essentially uh, just don't do anything in the mounted. So I realized that um, my my component uh, was was actually doing something a little funky when it was server-side rendered. It would like flash some content for a second and then it would like close actually once it like hydrated the component. So, you know, in server-side rendering, your component gets rendered on the server in, in the Node.js environment and then, or Chromium or V8 or whatever, then it gets put in the DOM and then Vue will actually look at it and say, oh, this is server rendered. I need to hydrate it. And then it'll like basically apply the state. Um, but the problem is, is that if you do things like like set set any data on mounted, then the thing that gets generated on the server will then mount to the DOM and then call mounted and then it'll muck with the state. And so it's just like being mindful that those are two different environments. And so you, you shouldn't do any like window or um, document on the server and then don't put like global side effects um, in, in the mounted lifecycle. Yeah, doing anything with uh, with document or window is, is definitely... Uh, definitely a potential problem. And to make to make a component that needs to access Windows sometimes uh, usable in a server-side rendered environment, you often have to check to see if like Windows is available first. And then if it is, then you can do Windows stuff. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. often do nothing or you do something different. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that was actually pretty easy. I, I submit, no one actually even complained about it. I just... Um... I just one day realized that I hadn't really tested it and I went to test it and it was just one line of fix. I was setting the, I was setting the result. There's like a, I maintain an internal property called is open. And so I just was setting is open on mounted to click to, to false. Well, it was a little more complicated than that, but essentially I, that was what I had to do. So just remove that and put it in the created and made sure it was good. Cool. Yeah, I've um, I, I've run into issues like that too before, where it, there's something I discover in one of my libraries, and it's like, oh, this is this is this doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Why hasn't anyone said anything? Yep. But yeah, a lot of times, like you know, no one has run into that you know specific edge case yet, or they've assumed that they're doing something wrong. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's always fun to when they assume they're doing something wrong, and you're like, actually, no, you you are doing exactly right. <laughs> and, and a lot of people just don't open issues too. Yeah, I sometimes wonder about that. If someone got frustrated with my component and just decided to give up and write their own, or oh, I'm sure it's happened with like everything that I've ever produced. Yeah, I guarantee. I, the only reason it wouldn't have happened is if it just isn't popular enough. <laughs> I had like two more, which is uh, the first one I haven't implemented yet. So it was kind of like a to do. I've implemented it on some components at Kong, um, but it's this idea of uh, it's the term. Actually, going back to Kent Dodds, uh, he he coined it. I think I believe he coined it, but it's called a data reducer or a state reducer. And so this pattern is um, instead of telling people, um, giving them props that are control props, controlling some states. So, for instance, on selected, I do a few things. You know, I maybe like when you select something, I'll close the input. Um, I'll um, fire off a, an event or something. I'll, I'll do a few things internally. Uh, but the problem with that is that. You, you come across people who are like, oh, well, when I click the suggestion, I don't actually want to close the results. Like I, I want to keep it open. Like, cause auto suggests you, you can't fit everyone's use case. Uh, so what you, you can do instead is implement like a, if you guys have ever used Redux or Vuex, um, there's like these ideas of reducers, which is um, you have some state and the event 
um, the Vuex action or mutation has the knowledge of what the state is, um, and then it will do some actions or mutations, and it will return that state. And so Vuex gives you the ability to build it out of the box, right? You have you have complete control over those actions. In components, you you less so do. You don't know the the users of your component don't have access to those reducers or those functions that return state. And so what you can do is you can give them events and you can get, or, you know, in the translating to Vuex, you could give them like Vuex actions. So, um, and you basically hand them the state of your component. And then on the completion of that method, so like say on selected, you, um, they actually mutate the state. Um, and so it allows them to reduce the state to what they want. Yeah. Something that, um, sometimes like the, the word reducers can can confuse people a little bit, but basically it's it's kind of like being able to like write your own computed properties like for the child component and like, uh, you know, pass those in, you know, so that if you want to decide, you know, like when exactly something is open, you know, you could, you could pass in an is open function that will return like either true or false, whether this thing should be open based on the state that that child component has access to. And it's actually a very similar idea to, to scope slots, but it's returning state rather than returning content. Yes, yeah, I, that's exactly right. So yeah, I agree. It's like kind of like a, any, any person who's like new to Redux, like I think reducer is probably like the most <laughs> uh, like intimidating term, but you're right, it's just like function, like get some state, like pass in some state, return some state. Yeah. I've also uh, seen it like being referred to as like inversion of control. Like, hey, like I don't want to control your state. Like, you go. Like, I'm giving you the state. Like, you do whatever you want, and then give it back to me. And then I have oh, some well, state. inversion like, of control state. is so much simpler. Uh, <laughs> that clarifies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also the idea of like you, you both were mentioning, just making sure that the component doesn't handle the state too much, that it does things, and then passes it on to like Vuex or Redux or whatever. Because like ultimately, if you if the component does a lot of those reducers or inversion of control, um, then the component is no longer reusable because then it's very specific to one use case. So like if you were to use it in here and then it changes state and if you were to reuse it, it that will also be affected by the previous one. Yeah, if I, if I had yeah. to pick a, a one word, uh, one word that I, I like better for that pattern, it would probably be a getter. Because that's yes, essentially what it that's, is. That is that, and that's exactly what you call it in Vuex anyway. So and yeah, yeah. I think it. I <laughs> think it's it funny that you call it that because a little I, bit more sense. I had someone uh, comment on my code and say that um, I was mutating arguments at, in a, inside of Gitters, and they thought they thought it was an anti-pattern. So it's, it's just mutating interesting. Arguments. It's like people coming from. I like, thought you were just returning state. Well, that's that's the thing is that um, the reducers actually mutate state inside of um, them. So you you give them oh. the state. You give them the state they can set is open or not, and then they return the state. Oh, so they don't return is open? They. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, you're right. They, so there's no side effects inside of state reducers, correct? Okay, cool. So maybe. Yeah, so in, in that case, it's just like a computer property. Computer properties also don't have any, have any side effects. And, and Gitter is. They shouldn't. Like, <laughs> it's, it's literally you know, what it's called uh, in JavaScript. So I think that's a, that's a pretty decent name for it. Heard here today. December 5th, 2018. <laughs> oh, this isn't the first time I've gone on this particular rant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think hopefully the first time I've gone on this particular rant on the podcast, though. Now it's immortalized.
So I haven't actually used it um, in Vue Auto Suggest, so I'm 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 hoping to because I think it will solve a little bit of the reusability aspect of it. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, and then the last one, um, this is more of a if you are thinking of components, this should probably be in your tool belt, which is what I'm calling the provider pattern. So a lot of components try to pass in components and then return, um, or rather they'll uh, try and pigeonhole into things where they're not supposed to. So for instance, if you're in Vue, I'll suggest you shouldn't also uh, include Axios as a dependent. And so you could um, write, um, I believe, I, I haven't seen this in Vue, but I, there was a React library where basically uh, is a higher order component. So you have a higher order component that passes in um, from the from the result of an XHR request. So you just give it like a URL and then it'll pass down the data to the child component. And so one of the things is um, at Kong, we have uh, the way we compose our components um, has been additive. So for instance, we recently had to make sure that all of our components on our admin dashboard were aware of user permissions. And so there's a couple ways to do that. Um, Vue provides several tools. You can have mix-ins. You can put all of the Vuex state into all of those components so that they're now aware of a permissions set. But we we knew that um, actually the way you configure Kong, uh, this was like an on-off switch. So we needed all of our components to know about the permissions of the user and conditionally render based on those permissions or just don't worry about it. And so we we implemented like basically a higher order component or uh, the provider pattern to where um, we wrap everything in what's called a RBAC validate component. It will it will know about the Vuex store uh, where we have permissions, and then it'll just like pass down and provide some some uh, like it's almost like, yeah, it uses scope slots. So we just pass down um, like data to the slot, and then it will conditionally render. Um, if if the user is allowed, and if they're not allowed, then we have different edge cases for tables and cards and et cetera, sidebars. So the idea is very similar to how like React does context. So it has like the overall provider pattern pattern or theme, and then that passes it through to child components. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good pattern. I think we've talked about this in the pod. I don't even remember what we talked about in the podcast, but we've mentioned that one as a good one too. Um, uh, another one that I've used uh, is like the provide inject pattern, which is like mm. the idea is that there isn't a component because sometimes it's annoying to always have to wrap, right? So if you have permissions, mm. you always have to wrap it in like a permissions component in order for children to know what it is. And then I've used provide inject. So it's just like whatever parent component is like, okay, provide permissions and then any nested children can choose to subscribe to that they can right. be like hey i i care about this and i want to know if permissions is true or false um and and decide it that way how do you make sure that the permissions that for instance you know we looked a little bit about how we might um there's a couple of ways to provide that data so from provide if you're providing permissions do all of the children components have to know about those like as props or data attributes um, so if you use the provider pattern, from my understanding of how you're using it, then you would pass it via props, right? Because it's like the temp, the slot will just pass through whatever. And then if children need it, it would have to pass it down as a prop. Um, but if you were to use, if you were to use the provide inject pattern, uh, you don't have to, the, the nice thing about that, which is similar to the old context API, <laughs> uh, the old React context pre-16, which was like, 
it essentially you would just grab it via like a data property. So like in the child itself, you could just grab it. I think it's just inject and then you would grab that specific thing, whatever you I called see. it. If you called it permissions, you would just grab it that way. Yeah, that was something that we were trying to avoid in a lot of the templates was like trying to maintain props across all the components so that they would now have to know about permissions. And I think one of the cool things about wrapping or composing functions with inside of templates as opposed to inside of Vuex or whatever is that the components or the templates, all of a sudden you just can erase all of those uh, higher order components. So the RBAC validate component that I had, it's like if you wanted to strip out RBAC, you would just basically remove all those components and all of the properties and methods and Vuex store wouldn't have to know about anything. Well, with, with provide inject, if you don't want to inject something, you actually don't need to. So for the components that don't care about permissions, you just don't add inject permissions. Inject in there. And then it doesn't exist anywhere in that component scope even. So as, as opposed to passing it as a prop, you're saying in the, the in, inject. Yeah, yeah, uh, using provide inject because it's, uh, it's providing something to descendants optionally if they want it. So the, the, the children components can decide what they want to grab from ancestors. Yeah, so one, I guess one thing we could have done is we could have provided and then everywhere that needed to know about, um, for instance, the permissions, which is inject permissions, and then exactly. it would be treated like a prop or a data attribute, just not reactive, I guess is the only... Yeah, I think provide inject generally is not reactive, but you, there's, there, are tech, there are tricks where you can make it reactive. Yeah, um, the, the root... The root won't be reactive, yes, but you can add right. reactive properties to it. It won't make things reactive automatically for you because a lot of things will not want to be. Well, part of the um, component that we were composing was um, it was actually feeding permissions. And then it was actually running a like simple algorithm to see if that... Comp- so it would actually... Each component had to know um, what resources it needed. So you wouldn't just wrap it in the component. Um, so it wouldn't just be like a inject permissions. It would be... Um, use this component, here are the permissions, and here are the resources that this specific component uh, has access to. So if you're looking inside of the template, you can say, oh, in order for users to be able to access this, I see the, the component and I see which resources this component needs to compute. So I, I, don't, I think it might have been better in that regard, but I, I assume we could have used inject as well to um, feed to the components and do the same thing with the plugin or something. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Cool. So I'm curious now, uh, changing topics slightly, you decided that you were going to open source this. Was that just out of the goodness of your heart? Or would you say that there's some kind of benefit to open sourcing something that you're finding useful internally? Like, does the, does the company that's open sourcing get some benefit? It was definitely 100% out of the goodness of my heart. 
<laughs> uh, so, no. so you have it internally. Oh, no, go ahead. Come <laughs> that was a, that was a joke. So tongue in cheek, oh, okay. uh, excuses aside, I think um, we did have some uh, something to benefit from, which is being involved in the community does provide some benefits and like people see your company. Like, I think there was like some like, oh, I want to get an open source because it's interesting. Like people submit bugs, like people find issues. Um, like if you have a bug in your code, then people find it and they submit patches. You learn a lot in the process. It's also like, I, for me, it was, a t- it was just like a big learning experience. I had to think in terms of reusability. So when I was, when I was developing it um, for open source, I knew that it wasn't going to, like it had to have some extra attention. So there are some trade-offs um, when you are thinking about open sourcing a component. Like you shouldn't release something that you're not proud of. And I'm not saying you sh- you can't, but ideally when you're writing a component that you want to open source, you're saying like, hey, world, like I, I developed something. Like maybe if it's not 100% code coverage, maybe the code isn't like airtight, but like I built something and I want to share it. Yeah, you um, think other people will find it useful. Yeah. And was there a lot of um, preparation that you needed to do from taking it when you took it from an internal tool to something that you were going to open source? There was a little bit of documentation um, burden. So, you know, making sure that people like could submit issues and knew how to run the run it locally. You know, you're working on a team, you know, it's kind of like uh, if you think of your team as like a military unit where like there's so much assumed about how the unit works that um, it's someone coming from the outside would need to go through a boot camp before they actually can work on your team. Um, and the same is true with like open sourcing components. Like if you go to a readme, um, it should have all of the necessary tools to get up and running. Something nice about that though, is you're making it a lot easier for new people to come onto your team too, because by being forced to write that documentation, uh, they're actually getting a lot of the documentation that they might need for onboarding and to, to help people who like haven't worked with this part of the app in a while and they, they've forgotten how it works, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, we we currently have those issues even with our internal component uh, library that we don't publish to um, to the world. Um, we have cross teams that um, are confused about the API or unsure. So it's helpful for us to um, write it in such a way that it is open source, but just internally to our company. I've also found for a lot of my projects that like getting so many different people's eyes on it that I would never really I, I would normally never get a chance to work with it allows me to like learn best practices and uh you know learn like new strategies for for solving uh problems like so much more than i otherwise would be I, you talked about learning a little bit but just getting like tons of free code reviews from smart people that's awesome <laughs> yeah I, I i get to, i get to learn so much uh pretty much every day from from people like asking me a question and realizing like I actually don't know why I didn't do that. That would be a good idea. Yeah, exactly. I've I feel humbled to be talking to all of you. It's it's a like definitely an honor to open source things. That's probably not like a a, sh- a shared opinion among all open sourcers, but I, I think it is an honor for people to open source. We live in a world where you can open source things and share code, um, and that's a, like such a beautiful thing. Like it, I mean, even when I started out in development, like GitHub was barely a thing, and I just can't imagine life without GitHub now and without being able to, or maybe I should be saying GitLab. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Both. <laughs> both. And I, I think it is both like in, in honor, like it, you know, it makes me feel really good to be able to 
contribute to a community and make other people's lives easier. And also it can be painful sometimes. You know, it's, it's like anything. It's like, it's like a relationship. <laughs> you know, so sometimes things are really good and then sometimes things are, are not so great. Too true, too true. Mostly an unrequited relationship. <laughs> it's like you invest a lot. I feel like when you write open source, it's usually like the maintainer. It, there's this idea of like the maintainer's burden. So you like take on, a, you invest a lot to begin with because you're trying to build a community, right? So you're like, I really care about this. And then hopefully with time, people reciprocate and the community builds around. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say un, unrequited. It's, it's just a complicated. Like in the beginning, in the beginning, you can't like assume that when, I, when you release an open source project, people are going to be like, oh my God, Darren released an open source project. I'm going to use it immediately. <laughs> Which like, I mean, some of us on this podcast might say that because we're like, Darren is awesome and we think he builds great things. So we're going to use it, but. Yeah, I, I agree with the maintenance burden thing. It's part of the good experiences people have with open source are typically um, because the community is nice and helpful. And then sometimes you get an email. I've, I've noticed actually a lot of my um, users of my component live in different parts of the world. And so I only get support issues like in the middle of the night, which is fun because I don't you know check my email in the middle of the night. But when I wake up in the morning... Um, it's like, oh man, this person was like really struggling with my component and now I have to like fix it. But if I fix it 24 hours from now, uh, like they're going to get it in 24 hours from then. And it's, there's like a, uh, oh, I'm like letting people down, even though it's free and they can change it if they want. Um, you sort of feel that burden. Like I need to be helping people. Yeah. I, I, I feel that burden a lot, even when I've been able to help like, uh, most of the people that have had an issue that day. You know, just like the, the last 20% or something nags at me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to get better at that. I'm trying to get better at uh, just just accepting because you can't do everything. That's totally right. true. That's totally true. Do you, how often do you find that people are asking for, you know, their support request is actually not a support request about your product, but actually a support request about how do I hook this up to a .NET WCF service, right? And because, it, you know, it looks funny. I can appreciate that because I uh, was originally a .NET developer when I first started out. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I think most of my issues have been that, actually. So people will say, hey, I really want to use this with vValidate, which is a very popular validation library in Vue. And so I, my first thought was, oh, that should be totally possible. And then I realized that something I did like slightly made that a little difficult. And mm. so I was like, oh, I felt like a huge burden. Like, oh, this is a very, I used vValidate at my last job. Like, like I would expect to be able to integrate this in with vValidate. And so it felt like, oh, I need to go fix this. Um, but then there were some people like asking like, oh, I have a very like specific edge case. And I was just like, yeah, you can't do that. Like, sorry. So I would say probably for the 80%. For the 80%, you can kind of either tell them either I can make it happen or that's just not possible. And for the rest, for 20%, you're like kind of shrugging your shoulders. It's do you, are you, do you have to be kind of honest about, I don't think that works and it's just not important enough to try to make that one really weird thing work? Yeah, being honest with people is 100%. Like I, I recently had a baby. I mean, I have a four-month-old and someone requested a feature or found a bug like literally the week that I had a baby and I wasn't like going to like hop on the computer and like fix it. And then, and so I just like replied quickly and said, Hey, I just had a baby. Like I can get to this probably in the next month. <laughs> But PR is welcome. And so people like really, I think people respond well to that. They think like, oh, open source is human. Um, and so it, I would say like overly communicate with people, like if you can quickly, um, it's been my mm -hmm. experience. 
I once saw this uh, screenshot, like, like here's open source in like a nutshell. And it was GitHub issue. And someone was like, this component is completely broken. And then someone responded, or the author responded, sorry, we have war in my country. I'll get to it soon. <laughs> it was like, it's like, wow, like, yeah, open source is human. Things just got real. Yeah, maybe they've got bigger problems. Right. Survival. <laughs> world problems seem a little uh, yeah and uh and, and joe I, I think i i think i know what you mean with like sometimes people asking for things that are you know it maybe seem completely unrelated to the actual library right. you know, it's like if you if you give an apple to someone and they ask you to teach them how to make a pie right and it's like right. well i mean that's kind of like a separate thing i like baking i don't i'm not a baker <laughs> maybe you could talk to a baker about that but like here's the apple you can do whatever you want with it <laughs> Right. So I don't support any open source libraries that I built, but, you know, I put out a, quite a few uh, courses, online courses. And so, you know, I'm teaching people something. And what I find a lot is a lot of the support requests, very, 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 very few of the support requests that I get in the discussion forums are about, hey, I have this, the, the course has a problem unless, and, and the ones that are usually it's their typo. But generally I get these questions like, hey, you taught me how to use, you know, Angular, that's a lot of what I've done so far. You taught me how to use Angular to do this, but I want to use it with this, or I want to do this, or I want to expand it beyond that. And I unfortunately kind of, you know, oftentimes have to just tell them, look, I, you know, either it's, I want to do something else. It's like, you got to take more courses on those topics, or I want to do this specific thing, like a WCF service that was on the top of my head, because that actually support just came in, that support request came in today, and I have to tell them, send them off to Stack Overflow. So it's kind of curious, you know, in the open source world, does that happen a lot? People are just, and I, Chris kind of resonated with that, but asking, you gave me the apple, I really want to make a pie. And you kind of, sometimes it's like, I'd love to sit here and work through with you how to figure that thing out. But I have no idea. And even if I did have some concept, right? Like I can't spend four hours helping you take the next step in your journey because I could at the same time, you know, either add more features or fix problems that would address hundreds or thousands of people using this product. Yeah, just a quick yeah. note on that. Um, at Kong, we are an, an API gateway and we're built on top of OpenRSD, which is based on top of Nginx. And so we have all these like Lua bindings. And um, we don't support uh, gRPC, which is like another protocol you know, similar to HTTP. And, um, but we posted a release candidate for um, Kong 1.0 recently. And um, one of our main authors in uh, Tebow, uh, Tebow said, hey, um, we don't have support for gRPC, but here's kind of how I would probably think about it if you want to like go toy with it. And he responded like very quickly to the person's request. And this is on like Kong Nation, which is um, a discourse forum that we maintain. And, you know, within like a month, someone responded and said, um, oh, hey, I got it working. And he posted that in one of our internal Slack channels. And everybody was like, our minds are blown. Like, I can't believe that someone got it working. Like, we just didn't have time to get it working. And someone got this very useful feature working just through the power of open source. And so the moral of that story, I think, is respond quickly with what you think might be a good approach, but you don't, you don't always have to like take it to fruition, right. take it to completion. There's so much thought and talk and uh, discussion about side of open source, which is you can't be a slave to the project, right? Open source maintainers and burnout amongst maintainers and stuff like this. I mean, we're, we're heading into that side of the discussion anyway, and I think I've heard that or read that discussion, you know, a hundred times in the last four or five years is people become more vocal about how demanding supporting an open source project can be. But um, still, it's, I think it's, I really like what you've constantly reiterated, which is communicate quickly if you can, and then be honest. 
And it's nice. It's also really nice to hear that apparently your responses so far have been very human and warm and not people demanding that you fix their issue because whatever problems you might have or whatever your life is like is way less important than the problem they're having right now. Yeah, and I've thought that people might respond more critically to the project in general because it was originally under the EduSense organization. And so sometimes people assume that if you're an SF-based organization, open sourcing components, then maybe you have a team of people that can get to um, your issues and they should, they should fix them. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, trying to humanize it so that people know they're just talking to Darren Jennings, um, who has a wife and kids. Right. Right. Cool. So I'm the host now. <laughs> and so I, I think we should get to picks at some point. Um, do we have anything else that we want to add to the conversation before we wrap up? I think there, there's one question, final, like wrap up question I would like to ask if nobody else has anything else. Sure, go ahead. Just because this is all about open source, if there's any final advice that you have for open source, either maintainers or aspiring people, just sort of as a summary to the whole entire conversation, I think it'd be a nice note to wrap up on. Yeah, I, I guess I could pick uh, something that we just hosted a Kong Summit and we had some speakers come, people I'd never heard of that were really great. And they just, so just to like lean on their experience, people who have been in software a lot longer than I have. Um, there was a guy named Chris Richardson. Uh, he touched like on um, patterns for microservices and service architecture. And one of the things he talked on was um, patterns. And so uh, a lot of times when people come to open source or you know microservices versus monoliths or Vue versus React, there tends to be like this, uh, he was quoting someone who says there's this thing called the rocks sucks dichotomy, which my technology rocks, your technology sucks. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about that <laughs> like was that. he was saying that, with patterns, you don't get the rock sex dichotomy. You get benefits, drawbacks, and choices. So I would just say that like, if you are going to choose to open source something, or if you are going to um, think about open sourcing anything, this, this is general advice, um, think about the benefits, the drawbacks, and the choices that you have to make um, in regards to those things. Because for a lot of companies, microservices doesn't make sense, but for a lot of companies, they do. Um, and so Without patterns, you have microservices are the only way. Monoliths are terrible. Um, or React is clearly the only decision for enterprise solutions. And Vue is for hobby, hobbyists. But with patterns, you have microservices fit our business needs. Monoliths are right for my organization at this time. You get a little bit more of the, um, maybe going back to just like the human aspect, which is we don't develop from a ivory tower. You know, we have real decisions and things. And so it made sense for me at the time to open source be able to suggest, um, but it doesn't make sense right now for us to like open source um, a lot of the components at Kong because we have a lot of benefits to open sourcing within, but we have a lot of drawbacks to open sourcing to the greater community. Nice. Awesome. That's a, that's a really good note to end on. So if people are looking for you, where can they find you? I'm pretty sure I'm Darren Jennings everywhere, except for maybe on Switch. I'm Dardron. Uh, so if you want to befriend me on Switch, it's actually kind of hard. You need like a friend ID. But yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Darren Jennings. On LinkedIn, I think I'm Darren Jennings. On GitHub, I'm at Darren Jennings. Except for in the middle of the night, you're at the dark night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, can, you can email detailed instructions for how to, how to friend you on Switch uh, to Chuck, and we'll leave that in the show notes. There you go. <laughs> okay, I look forward to beating you all at Rocket League. <laughs> Ooh, those are fighting words. And, and you Ooh. probably would. Yeah, you probably would. So. It's a very hard game. I'm not that good. 
Can you fly? Are you, are you one of those people that are just like flying around all the time? Okay. I, I don't want to make any claims about my Rocket League abilities. Let's just play. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and the next week's episode, we figure out if Darren beat Chris. <laughs> oh, he totally could, I'm sure. I'm, I, I don't play very often. I don't play at all. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, let's move to picks. Joe, do you want to start? Sure. Just a note, I think we've picked this before, but all the Framework Summit talks are online at YouTube. So if you did not uh, get to see the Framework Summit, there's a ton of really awesome talks, including talks by Divian and Chris. So you can check those out at the Framework Summit YouTube channel. Very easy to find. Framework Summit, thankfully, is a very not low competition set of, set of words. Uh, in addition to that, speaking of YouTube channels and the uh, um, videos, I would pick something that's Angular related, but <clears throat> not sp- specific. If you're not, not Angular, it's still, I, le- I want to promote this idea. So at ng-conf, we decided that um, there's all these videos out there. And a lot of times, or at least I find this, the talks that I don't get a chance to watch, I want to get back and watch them, but it's hard to carve out the time to watch all these talks. So we decided to go through and we are cutting down our videos, starting with the most popular ones and working our way through them to about three-ish minute versions. Got an editor that's going through who understands the tech, who is cutting them down to short versions that people can, uh, if you, are you interested in this talk? Well, you can watch the three-minute version and decide if you either got enough out of it or if you want to watch the whole version. And so far, the response has been very, very, very positive, uh, both with what we're seeing for numbers and for the response when people, we tell people about what we're doing. So. It's a really awesome thing. If you happen to be doing some Angular, you could check out the ng-conf minified uh, playlist on YouTube. We're doing, releasing two a week. But if not, I hope that uh, this sort of concept picks up elsewhere because there's plenty of stuff I would love to check out, but I don't have 45 minutes to watch the full talk. So, And then finally, uh, we were speaking about human when we were talking about the reference to uh, the poor maintainer that was in a place in a country that was in the middle of war. Uh, I don't know when this, how late, how long till this episode gets published, Chuck? How much of a delay are we on? I think we're like uh, four or five weeks. Four or five weeks. So this is going, so this pick is going to come at far after the new year, but it happens to be right in the heart of Christmas season. So uh, maybe we can, you can remember this for next year or just pick it up now. But uh, it's, it's a good time to give to people that are in far greater need than you are. We were, I was downtown with my family. We were going to go see the lights at downtown Salt Lake. In Temple Square in Salt Lake City, they do they decorate with like millions and millions of Christmas lights. It's beautiful. And in the building that was next door, when we were kind of like meeting up as a group, they had these three big boxes, these huge things, and you could go up to them. And they looked like uh, vending machines when they were the giving boxes. And it was so cool. They had these all these little cards 
<clears throat> it looked like just a regular old food vending machine, but instead of food, each little card had something like a cow or a goat or two chickens or food for 30 days for a family. And you buy these things and then it, the money just gets donated to an organization that takes care of that sort of stuff. It was really cool. We took them with my family and we did some stuff, but it was just, uh, it's that time of year and there are tons of people all over the world. They're in way, way greater need than you are. So that'll be my final pick is giving. Nice. That's a, that's a really good, good pick. Chuck, do you want to go next? Sorry. I want to jump back in on that. I actually found this idea that's really cool. So if you have a family or something, this is a totally cool idea for a way to give, which is we went through each of our kids. We all picked out our favorite meal, right? And we figured out how much it would cost to go to whatever restaurant that was and buy our favorite meal. And then instead of that, we had a super, super, super low cost, simple meal at home. We took all the money and we gave it to one of these charities that uh, fights world hunger. So uh, that's a really cool activity to do with your family or your partner or even your friends, right? If you're looking for an opportunity of some way to give in a cool way. So sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, Chuck. Nope, it's all good. Keep talking about giving to people. I like it. Yeah, so uh, for my picks, I've mostly been uh, working on, well, I, I have two projects underway. One of them is this week we did a challenge, me and uh, three of my friends. Uh, you can go listen to us talk every week about business and stuff on entreprogrammers.com. It was essentially that we had to do eight Pomodoros before lunch or before noon. Uh, of course, one of the guys is East, Eastern time zone. So he, he posts at like 9am, right? <laughs> that he's done. And uh, the other two guys are Pacific time zone. I'm mountain time. So they have an hour later than I do. But anyway, I've been getting up early and, and getting them done because, you know, my recording days are Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so I had to get up early to get them done before I started recording. Anyway, it's been really, really terrific. So I'm going to pick the Pomodoro technique. Um, if you don't know what that is, just go look it up. And then I'm also going to pick, what is this thing? Kanban Flow. And Kanban Flow is an app that you use to manage projects. Um, but my friend John, who's one of the guys that's doing the same challenge, he has a video out that shows you how to basically plan your week using Kanban Flow. And that's kind of the technique I've been using. Um, Kanban Flow also has a Pomodoro timer built into it. And so that's what I've been using. And it's, it's been really nice. I've gotten a ton done this week and it's Wednesday. So <laughs> really, really digging that. And then um, the other thing that I've been doing, and this is something we talked about on JavaScript Jabber. Um, the guests were Divya, our very own Divya, and uh, Phil uh, Hawksworth. And we, we talked about uh, basically uh, Jamstack and all the stuff they do at Netlify. And I've been playing with 11D and which is a server rendered server. What is it? Static site generator. That's the term I'm looking for. And I'm really digging it. Um, I'm probably going to switch devchat.tv over to that just because WordPress is kind of overkill for what we're doing with that. And then for like the shopping carts and stuff and conference registrations and things like that, then I'll use WordPress for that. So um, I'm really digging it. And Netlify makes it really easy to get those sites deployed. So I'm going to pick them as well. There you go. Lots of picks. That was awesome. That was actually a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was um, terrific. We'll get it linked up in the show notes too. Awesome. Chris, what are your picks? My first pick is a puzzle game called Hexels Infinite. It's like a pure puzzle game. I, I would maybe describe it as like a Minesweeper taken to the extreme. <laughs> it's like a super extreme version of Minesweeper. Uh, 
it's a lot of fun and is the kind of game where uh, you might end up just like staring at the screen for like 10 minutes, just like planning out moves and trying to like analyze the board, uh, which I happen to really enjoy. I find that really soothing. If you find that really soothing too, you might, you might want to check it out, especially since the holidays can be stressful for a lot of people. My second pick is simply to be vulnerable with, with people in your life. Um, I have a friend who is struggling recently and, and he didn't want to be a burden on people. He didn't want to tell people that something was, you know, that he was dealing with some stuff and he didn't want to tell people uh, that, you know, he could really use some help. Uh, he wanted to deal with his own issues. Uh, didn't actually even want to rely on his partner. And that might sound noble, but I think, I think there's another side of that that's important. First, if, if you're never vulnerable with people, if you're never like showing that you struggle sometimes, that you have weaknesses, they're never going to want to come to you with their own stuff. So if, if you seem like you're just perfect all the time, or at least pretending that you're perfect, people aren't going to feel comfortable going to you with their own, with their own things. And if you want to be the kind of person who like your friends feel like they can go to you for help when they need it, I, th I think it is sort of paradoxically important to reach out to your friends for help as well. And also, he was struggling so much that it was like wiping out his capacity for everything else in his life. So he was, he was less able to be there like for others in his life who, who perhaps also needed him uh, because he didn't have the capacity, because he, he wasn't able to effectively deal with this stuff on his own. Uh, and, and I think with so many things, even if you can eventually deal with it on your own, you know, if you can save yourself like weeks, oftentimes months of hardship by just like reaching out which has, has so many times been the case in my life, I, I think it's, it's definitely worth it. Like you can, you have more energy to give to other people uh, and other people also feel more comfortable reaching out to you and, and getting the help that they need. I, I know a lot of people around the holidays also struggle with mental health stuff. And in the Northern hemisphere, when things are darker, uh, we also get seasonal affective disorder, many of us. And I guess that brings me to my final pick, which is sun lamps. Sun lamps are really good. And you can take vitamin D supplements as well. <laughs> to uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully not get as sad as seasonal affective disordered as you otherwise would. That's it. That's a great, great pick. Fantastic pick. Yeah. Hey, um, I want to chip in on that pick with uh, books by Brene Brown that talk about that very same subject. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's a good suggestion. Awesome. Darren, do you want to go next? Yeah, I want to start off by saying I really resonate with what Chris was saying um, at the end there, which is um, recently I was given that same advice. Someone at work, my manager, namely, she uh, basically said, hey, um, I didn't realize like you were going through a really rough time personally right now. And once I someone externally said I should probably communicate that to her, um, that I was basically yeah like going through a really rough time, like um, with some personal issues. Um, you know, we just had a baby. And so there's like a lot of postpartum and things that have made just the season of our lives really hard. And so naming that and like telling people in my life actually was non-intuitive. So I, I really resonate with that. Um, but I would, yeah, I would, I would pick um, to go back to tech uh, real quick is like, I would pick, uh, we've been using a library at, at a con just recently called X-State and it's been pretty cool. It's by a guy named David K. Piano. You guys have probably seen him. He's, he created this library called X-State for uh, state machines and been really cool to integrate it into our view apps. Um, I didn't really get to talk about it on the show, but I would definitely recommend going and checking it out. And then second pick would be, I've been playing this really awesome game 
on a Switch called Hollow Knight. It's like a platformer. So if you don't like Metroid or Castlevania type games or Metrovania, as they call it, uh, I would totally go check this out. It's pretty sweet. It's like uh, me and my son play it. He's six. So uh, it's good for all ages. Oh, it's called Hollow Knight. Oh, I've heard of this. It's a little older game. I don't think it's just on the Switch. Uh, I guess my third one would be go check out View Auto Suggest. I'll just leave it at that. Awesome. Yeah, I was just looking at View Auto Suggest and it has really good documentation. So it's. it's Ooh, high praise, well high praise. <laughs> With like, I, I, I do appreciate, like we were mentioning, the code sandbox demos that you added there because it's just a really nice trick that allows people to kind of understand how it's used in real life. It's really nice. All right, I'll go next. Um, so I've been working on this thing, which is, so like December is Advent month, I guess. I think that's like a very Christmas-oriented thing. Um, and so a lot of Advent calendars are out. Where pe- it's Advent calendars are like, I don't actually know the history of them because I'm not, like, I don't celebrate Christmas, but it's just the idea of like the countdown. I can't tell you the history, so I'm just going to say it's just a, t- a countdown with like whatever. I'm really sorry for butchering Christmas traditions. But <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of really cool like people out there who write content. So they do like advent content calendars. So like every day they release specific things. There's one called 24ways.org, which is like various web things, like cool web things that are happening in the web. And they release one post every day. That's a really cool one. And another one I follow is called like performance calendar. They release content only in December, I think. And so they have one which is just like a post on performance. And that's something that I've been trying to improve on because I don't know a lot about performance. Because I usually someone else thinks about it and I don't have to bother. And I figured as a web developer, I should care more. And so I've been trying to ramp up on that. And on that vein, I've actually been trying to write myself. So um, I have been releasing one post every day. <laughs> For the past few days, it's only been four days. Today, I have a post that I'm going to publish. But the, my goal is to ultimately like write one every single day. And the idea is to like kind of understand and learn a concept that I don't otherwise know and then write about it. And I think in general, as developers, we always consume content. And I think there's so much value in being able to explain things. Like Darren, you were mentioning just like the idea of writing documentation helps me strengthen my own understanding of things. And so as a personal exercise, like I've started doing that as well. And so that's like my pick. And I have to say, I'm also just like really impressed by the stuff that, that Divya writes, especially like when she's only written it in a single day. Oh my gosh. Like considering that, like I definitely couldn't produce stuff that quality. So I, where can people oh, find you. the stuff that you're writing? It's on my website, shortdiv.com. And it's, it's like incredibly, incredibly raw and unedited because I, I don't have a lot of time because the idea is that every day I kind of learn a thing and then write the thing. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah. So it's, it's a very quick turnaround period, which is nice because then I get to practice writing, but also scary because people actually read it. <laughs> and you also write for the Netlify blog, right? I do. I also write for the net. That one is more po- polished. The one for my own blog, because it's my own blog, I can do whatever I want, um, which is nice. So yes. Cool. And so with that, uh, we'll wrap up today's show. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And as always, enjoy the view. Thanks, everyone. That was great. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>